Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From NBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 10, Blinders. In this week's episode, we went through all of the forensics testimony that came out in Jennifer's trial, which amounted to a solid 30 minutes of trial time. And we also covered some timing issues, including the time of death that was noted on the autopsy report. Um, Joined again with Zach here with me in person. Hey, guys. And Mike is joining us remotely via Zoom. What's up, guys? And I want to go ahead and get started because before we get into your questions, there's been a couple updates in a couple of cases that we've talked about before that I just want to chat about just for a couple minutes. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so before we get into questions about this week's episode of Truth and Justice, I want to throw a big shout out to fellow true crime podcaster, Chris Lambert, who we had on on um, season nine. I don't remember the episode number, uh, but his, his episode is also going to be on the bonus episode of True Crime Binge tomorrow. So Chris Lambert hosts the Your Own Backyard podcast. He's a musician who decided to take up the torch for trying to find justice for Kristen Smart, a Cal Polytech student that went missing in 1996, reopened the investigation on his own and and really got the ball moving. He made some connections to police in the case um, to try to work with them, brought out new witnesses, breathed new life into the case. And because directly, no questions asked, because of his work, two people. Uh, just yesterday when we're recording this, it was Tuesday, were finally arrested 25 years later after Kristen went missing. And in the, I watch, it's online, you can, you can see it. If you go to any of Chris's social media, you'll see it. Um, but in the press conference where the arrests were, uh, were announced, the sheriff giving it said, because of the podcasts that Chris interviewed a witness they hadn't heard before, and then, and then he passed that on to them. So then they went and talked to that witness. She said, then gave them enough information to get a warrant. Uh, and they went, and then through that warrant, they gathered more evidence that allowed them to get another warrant. I think they said they even tapped the phone lines or, or electronic communications of Paul Flores and his father. And they said through that, that gave them enough evidence to get another warrant. 
just a couple of weeks ago, they they executed search warrants at Paul Flores and his dad's house, I believe. And, and through this announcement, they said through that cert- execution of that search warrant, they found enough evidence to where they have arrested and charged Paul Flores with murder, with the murder of Kristen Smart, uh, with, with no bail, uh, which typically is an indicator that because, you know, he's got, they have to convince a judge not to issue bail. So that's usually an indicator that they were able to present some pretty strong evidence. Um, obviously still innocent until proven guilty, but, um, but he's been arrested, no bail for murder. And his father was arrested for, um, an accessory to murder. Uh, so, so that is, is a giant break in a 25 year old case. And I think it's just absolutely awesome that that came because of the work of a true crime podcaster and especially a guy that, you know, this, this wasn't NPR is serial. This, this is an independent creator a musician who who took the charge to tell this story and investigate this case, and it has led to an arrest. So hats off to Chris Lambert. If you haven't already listened to the Your Own Backyard podcast, now's the time to go binge that one uh, because it's just incredible, the work that he's done. Yeah, hats off to that guy. I mean, that's that's huge. One thing I noticed about the interview with him that you guys did was that he was really sincere and in the investigative podcasting true crime space for the right reasons and it it just all just exploded in the right direction it's so awesome because you if i remember correctly in the interview i asked him like is there going to be a season two or where are you going to go with this and he was like no i don't think so like he wasn't he wasn't trying to start a career as a true crime podcaster he just wanted to try to solve this case yeah and it was a a local case to him that he just was really trying to get solved yeah, I mean that that's amazing. Kudos to him. That's that, his work has been phenomenal through this whole thing. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's so impressive, and I just I just I, I'm I'm in awe of the work that he did, and I'm just I'm just I'm I'm proud to have know I'm, I'm proud to know the guy and been able to talk to him and 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 to even be working in the same space where he accomplished such an amazing amazing task, and 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 we've seen this so many times, time and time again, with you know uh, Madeline Barron with the Curtis Flowers case. Um, there's just been, you know, the undisclosed has had multiple exonerations. Like we've just, we've just seen real world consequences coming from a lot of these true crime podcasts. And I just think it's amazing. Is it a first time for the like law enforcement to actually acknowledge the work of a podcast in the investigation? I, I you know, I don't know, uh, for sure. I can't speak to that. It, it's the first time that I, that I know of where they made that that direct connection. You know, we did see in serial when Anand Syed was at his um his appeals hearings, like in the hearings the serial podcast was brought up, but certainly law enforcement doesn't even acknowledge that that was a wrongful conviction. But for me, this is the first time I've I've seen where law enforcement really tipped their hat to the 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 independent crowdsourcing uh, content creators that help them solve the case. Well, I think it's huge too, because it's not a closed case. Like a lot of those cases, those wrongful convictions are closed cases where you guys have access to these files where this is a cold case. This is a case that's just, he went out and investigated on his own with really no help. Yeah. He just beat the streets, knocked on doors and, and just tracked down witnesses and ended up sounds like cracking the case. So yeah, we'll move on from that. Cause, but, but big, uh, big hats off to Chris Lambert in the, your, your own backyard podcast. Uh, very, very, very impressed with the work that he's done. Um, and then also the same day, or maybe the day before, Kathleen Zellner um, 
tweeted out a, a potential bombshell in the Stephen Avery case. Uh, and I, I read the motion she filed, but she filed a motion for a Brady violation uh, indicating for the, any of those that watch Making a Murderer and Making a Murderer uh, season two there. She she made I and I don't I'll tell you right now, I don't know. I, I'm on the fence as far as Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence. After season one, I was pretty sure he was guilty after season two. Kind of, the, I, I would say she, Kathleen Zellner made a good case for his innocence. Uh, and part of that case was that she believed, I think through like the, when they, they got the reports of the cadaver dogs and where they went and some other things that she thinks that it might've actually been Steve's nephew, Bobby, who lived next door that was involved in the murder. I think there was a witness that had come forward that like saw him on the side of the road or something. Yeah. So I, I, I read this, I think in a people magazine article yesterday. And it said, and it, and the and the nephew Bobby was spotted by a witness who saw him driving the victim's car, a Toyota and Rav Four, and trying to trying to hide the car somewhere. I think. Yeah. So so as the police case goes, uh, the victim's car was found. Her Toyota Rav Four was found on Stephen Avery's property, which was a kind of a linchpin of their case. Yeah, on the family's property. Yeah. Yeah, and um, there was some controversy around it already because there was some audio recording from the dispatch log where one of the cops the night before seemed to be looking at the car, where he he uh, you know he he calls in the plate number, and then you know he says are you you know he says is it a, it's a blue Rav Four and they're like yeah that's what it, that's what it is, so. It seemed like maybe they had found it the day before, and then and then when it's found on the property the next day, it was like this search party and these these two people. Uh, I think it was a woman and her daughter. They were just part of the search party. Like go into the 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 salvage area where all the the wrecked cars are, and walk straight to it and say, "Look, there it is." So there was already kind of some iffiness around that car. Well, what what came out was that this other witness, this neighbor, um, according to her her brief that she filed or motion that she filed. On he like delivered news. Or he wasn't a neighbor. He delivered newspapers, and he was delivering a newspaper like four in the morning to the Avery property on the day the car was found, and says that he saw uh, Bobby Avery, the nephew, and another man pushing the Toyota Rav Four onto the property, like like pushing it there to like hide it there. And so this is, I think, a few days after the murder, and. The, he claims this guy has come forward and claims that he told police he called the police and told them he saw that happen on that day and they never did anything with it and certainly never turned that over to the defense. The argument is that it's a Brady violation that the police knew that this witness was out there that saw Bobby or allegedly saw Bobby Avery and and some other person pushing the car onto the Avery property, onto Steve Avery's property. I th- it'll be huge if they have if they can find any proof that this actually happened. Yeah, and that's going to be the big thing. I, when I look at it, I'm a little if like it's like wow, that's a massive, that's a bombshell. But, you know, as far as like how it'll play out in court, like I hope that she's got if it's just this guy saying it happened, I feel like it probably won't help Steve Avery very much at all because the state will say, well, there's a big reward in the case, and this guy comes forward all these years later and says that he saw this happen, and he never said so before. We don't believe you. So I'm, I'm hoping there's some way to corroborate it. 
That seems to be like the Achilles heel of any kind of like crowdsourcing investigation is like the the super fans or the obsessed people who get involved and or maybe get involved for they'll do anything to get involved sometimes and sometimes right. they'll they'll lie or just try to put them involve themselves to to be celebrated in, you know in the case and they could be completely lying but they're just like fanboying or something right and 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 or they could be telling the truth but then you always have to kind of like balance that with what you're saying you know that like were they did they really know this or are they just trying to be involved or are they just trying to get the reward so i don't know anything about it but I, but there were a few people on the on the fan page asked if we would we would mention those two cases to update so those are the updates i think the chris lambert thing is is uh, and the chris and smart case that is that is amazing over the top crazy the making a murderer Stephen Avery thing is is interesting. I'm I'm curious to see how things develop with that. And uh, with that being said, we'll get into your questions about our case, the Jennifer Jeffley case. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, our first question comes from Alexis. Jennifer seems to be alibied based on the timeline presented this week. But if Bob is right about his theory that Eva told KD, Youngster, and Jennifer to lie about the screams, and they didn't really happen, then do we really know what time the murder occurred? If the attack occurred even a little earlier, say 30 minutes or an hour earlier, then Jennifer no longer has her alibi, and it feels like we are back to square one. Do any of the forensic or autopsy findings point to an actual time of death that aligns with the timeline that we've been building up until now? No, I mean, we, we don't have... as as kind of was the point over the over the beginning the first segment of this episode was that uh, timing's whitewashed out of this entire case file so all we literally have to work with the only documented time that we have to work with is that EMS called the time of pronounced Catalina dead at 9:15 a.m. it's all we have from there all we can do is try to piece things together and 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 hypothesize about what it means so you know, I'm looking at someone that I'm hoping to be able to find as the nurse that performed CPR on on Catalina to ask, you know, what was the condition of the body? You know, I know as a, as a first responder, most of the time, if they're, you know, if someone's been down, if somebody's dead for a couple hours or even an hour, then the body will be cold. It'll start to stiff. And, and typically you wouldn't perform CPR in that case. Yeah, that's one thing I'm really curious about is because I feel like being that she's a nurse, if she came in. You know, it says she checked the pulse, meaning to me that if she started CPR after she checked the pulse, there's a reason for her to start CPR. Right. So, I mean, maybe she's not, maybe she doesn't have a pulse at that point, but if she's warm or something, you know, there's a reason she started life-saving measures at that moment. 
Right. But the, the problem is, though, then there's, there's still other reasons. Now, the fact that she wasn't, you know, a dispatched medical personnel changes things a little bit. But, you know, as you know, there, there are times when EMS will show up and they'll start performing CPR on somebody that they know they can't save because they're required to until they get permission to stop. Um, or they might start just to try to kind of appease, make a show of it for the people that are around there. But those are all, you know, to me, I think most likely is that uh, she thought that there was still a possibility of saving her life. And then also we have Pam Wiley, who says that she checked her pulse and says that she thought she felt a pulse. Now, you know, she may not, she may have, she may not have, but to me, that means that, that Catalina wasn't cold. You know, there, there's, um, if, if you've ever had the displeasure of uh, checking the pulse on someone who has been down for, you know, any period of time at all, even 30, 40 minutes, it's a, you know it. When you touch a body that's that's been dead for, uh, for for very long at all, you know you're touching a dead body. How quickly would the the temperature drop on a body like that? I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you the exact exact time how long it would take. I know that I've been to calls where somebody had been down for you know an hour or a little less than an hour, and they're they're cold. They're not stiff, but they're they're cold and they're blue. Um, that's the, like like almost immediately. The color will start washing out of their face. Their lips will turn blue. The skin gets pallor um, because you know, you're not circulating blood anymore. Uh, so it, it doesn't take long for that to happen. And again, see, I, I I feel like the fact that Pam thought she felt a pulse means she didn't look super obviously dead. And the fact that the the, the nurse performed CPR tells me that she she wasn't obviously dead, me, meaning that she had not been dead very long, like within minutes, I would think. Uh, is how long she had been dead, uh, but again, we're just, again that that is taking the information we have and trying to and trying to put it together to speculate kind of as far as when the time of death is. And to, to her point, like the yeah, I, I still maintain I don't think the scream. I'm not saying I don't think Catalina ever screamed during the attack. I don't think that Eva calling back in a fake voice, screaming back that I fell and hit my head. Personally, my my personal opinion at this moment is that I don't think that happened at all. I think that was I. I just and just doing it without any emotion attached to the case, just doing what we normally do with, with a statement analysis and looking for uh, signs of veracity and signs of deception and how thing. And every statement, nobody can get that part right. Nobody, and, and it's a pretty, you know, it, it's a pretty weird thing, right? If you, if you have somebody calling out, you know, you come down the stairs and somebody's you hear a man's voice saying, "I fell and hit my head." You'd think that would be pretty consistently told from everybody that witnessed it, and nobody gets it right. I I don't think it happened at all. Um, so yeah, that does open the door to say maybe the the murder happened before that, uh, but it's kind of hard in the timeline to figure out when that would have happened. And, and then again, based on what we just discussed with uh, the life saving measures that were taken, I think that she had she hadn't been dead more than a couple minutes. Well, and I think we have a pretty good timeline on the phone call, the page. In, in the the responding phone call and and again obviously it's you can't really say because we're all different people but i feel like if jennifer had been part of this murder or committed this murder she's not going to go answer that page it, she's not going to go talk and then call the phone company and answer the phone back when this the gentleman calls her back and i think there's you saying like if she had committed the murder before that before that yeah yeah that that seems odd the other problem we have with the page is though that you know again everything's washed out we have no do- we actually don't have any documentation that she got the text at 8:45 so Eva says 
she looked at her her pager and her text or her page that she got was at 7:44 a.m. and she says she had gone back to sleep and it was a while later when Jennifer then comes out. Jennifer says she got her to page at 8:45, uh, so which fits with all that, but it's not documented. The police she says in one of her interviews that she showed her pager. I think when she was talking to Alan, she says, I showed, which it sounds to me like it was Peekert, the first cop that talked to her. Um, she says, I showed them my page with the number on it and the, and the time, uh, presumably the time, too. She showed them the page that, uh, to the cop, but he didn't write it down. Off, off, you know, no records were pulled, so we're left with, well, Jennifer says it was at 845. So, th- so that, throws a little, that throws a kink into things, too, because maybe it was 830. Maybe it was 840. Maybe it was at eight. I don't know. Yeah, that's disappointing that they don't have that on record. Yeah, it's disappointing that they don't have a lot of things on record. Lynn has a few questions. First, she writes, can we possibly identify the female with the red color accents in her hair? It's a unique feature that four witnesses corroborate. She seems important to the crime. So we're going to get into this. This may be the, the spot. I don't know where to fit it into an episode. After I recorded this episode and digging through the police file, I actually found uh, it's it's very short, a little bitty p- uh, piece in the police file where Officer Swainson, Detective Swainson, actually talked to Zaragoza Garza, who was the guy that drove by and and saw the woman standing there. And what he writes in his report isn't exactly the same as what Mr. Garza testified to. He says that he got home at like seven thirty. I, the, the time, like the time that he got home, would have been later, based on what he said then. And he says after his kids went to school, then he, then he went to the store, which still could be seven forty-five. But he doesn't say seven forty-five. It just says he got home from work, kids went to school, and then he drove out and he saw the person. But uh, at trial, he describes this girl with like the the red hair, kind of in a ponytail, and she's wearing a collared shirt that's either blue or maroon. In the shorts, which any of that, I, I, I was, as I said in the episode, so he's driving by, not looking for this woman in what would have been a pretty, you know, there's it, that early in the morning that with the, with the way the apartments, the way they're close together, there's not any sun shining down in there at that point. And just very quickly sees the back of this woman as he drives by and describes her in that kind of detail. That was a big thing I was wondering about is how much weight we can actually put into that because exactly what you just said. If he's if he's describing her from behind, that means he's driving through the parking lot area of the apartment complex, right. which means she's on the far side of the building facing away. I, I don't feel like there's a ton of weight you can put into his physical description. Yeah. Well, she would be so basically saying she was standing on Eva's stairs staring mm-hmm. into which would be about halfway down the building. But still, yeah, it's, it's probably 150 feet. Mm hmm. Um, when he didn't know he needed to be paying attention. Yeah. And, and I can't imagine, you know, seeing the diagram, I can't imagine there is a long time period to, to see this person as you're driving through that area. No, it's a narrow window. But then I found the police report, which I'll get posted. And he didn't describe her in that way in the police report. So once again, no recordings, nothing, no written statement was ever taken. Although the report says they're going to take a written statement. And once again, when he, he gives the report to Swainson. So Swainson and Allen are the two detectives that I think are, are I think they're crooked detectives mm-hmm. is, is the way I see it. I mean, it, even if Jennifer's guilty, Detective Allen, for sure, in, in my opinion, is, is twisting facts to try to make his case. But 
in the in his description in the report on on that was taken that day, he describes the woman as she was a black girl wearing a wearing shorts, a black t-shirt and had two-toned hair pulled back in a ponytail, which I just saw this uh Monday. And I read that I was like, "Oh, well that's Jennifer." Mm-hmm. He saw Jennifer. And then I thought, "Well, wait a minute." And I went back and so Lynn points out here there's four witnesses that saw Jennifer and described described the two-toned hair. I read the verbiage in these in the reports is all exactly the same. Red Rock says she's wearing black t-shirt and had her hair pulled back in a ponytail and it's two-tone. Housen says, I don't know the girl. She's wearing a black t-shirt and her hair's pulled back in a ponytail and her hair is two-toned. June Sage looks through the people and says she's wearing a black t-shirt. Her hair's pulled back in a ponytail and it's two-toned. Um, and I think there was a, few, a, a couple others. Every single report, it, it's, it's written exactly the same. Black t-shirt, hair in a ponytail, two-toned hair. Every single report. Now you might think, and you might be right, that, well, that's all, that's good. That's all very consistent that that was definitely Jennifer in all these circumstances. Or you might think, what are the fucking odds that these eyewitnesses all got every detail exactly the same, exactly right, and described her hair in exactly the same way? Yeah, I, that's that's pretty tough to decipher there very low odds yeah mm-hmm. i mean eyewitness testimony we all know is the worst possible eyewitness identifications are hard they're, they're, they're the worst evidence there is people don't get things right and, and the fact that everyone and using the same word like i i'm having a really hard time and this is just me thinking out loud so don't don't take this as me giving you facts this is me giving you my opinion i think it is extremely unlikely that every single person that saw Jennifer that day described her as having hair pulled back in a ponytail and it was two-toned hair and the shirt and the, and the black t-shirt. And then we see with Gar- so and, and of all those people, none of them testify. We talked about earlier like like the prosecutors are picking who to testify that. So we don't have a we don't have a recording or even a transcript of any of these people saying that. We have Detective Swainson or Detective Allen writing into their report that they said this. And it is, it's both those detectives that wrote that exact verbiage, not just, not one or the other. That's a good question. Cause I think I have to go back. Cause I think it may have been, cause on the scene, all the, st- all those interviews, I think may have been, um, all Swainson. Okay. I, Detective Allen may not have been a part of that. But the other thing is too, that, you know, these reports are written, they take notes. The reports are all entered. The dates are on the reports when they're actually entered in. The reports are all typed up and entered in after the arrest, after Jennifer's arrested. So that's just food for thought. Now, now, did Garza testify? That's what we talked about. He did testify. Garza testified. So his testimony seems different than his. Right. You know, and that's one thing that I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant on because he does describe her as a, a 25 or mid 20s female. So if they've led him into something, why wouldn't they lead him into a younger age? I don't think they led him. In, so my theory that I'm getting at, here, I don't think they led him in anything. I think they wrote down what they wanted to write down about what he said. Because when he gets on the witness stand, it's a blue or a maroon shirt. The hair looked kind of red. She looked older, like in her 20s. When they say, like, when, when uh, Coin asked her about her skin tone, 
Jennifer's sitting right in front of him. And he says uh, it, her skin tone was kind of like that lady there in the front row. Okay. D- doesn't indicate Jennifer. But so, but so June Sage, you would think, would be a critical part of the state's case. She's an eyewitness that says, in, according to the report, I should backtrack. Because I, did, I said that, that Swainson or Allen wrote these reports. But I think, it was, I think I'm wrong about that because I think Piekert wrote the report with June Sage. It should be a critical part of the state's case. According to her report, she describes Jennifer the exact same way everybody else does. And sees her knocking on the door, going over there, hearing the screaming. Prosecution doesn't ever testify. Red Rock walks up, sees Jennifer. Witnesses her what she's wearing, where she's at, right at the front door. They don't have him testify. Housen walks up, doesn't know Jennifer's name, but knows for sure she's wearing a black t-shirt, hair and a ponytail, two-tone. They don't have him testify. The only one that they had testified that described her that way was, um, and there may have been, I got to go back through because I think Pam Wiley might have described her like that. It's, it's, it's very consistent, but they have Garza testify. And when he testifies, he doesn't say what they say that he said, which could be memory, right? It's been almost a year, but also it's like, it's pretty coincidental that everybody described her the exact same way with the exact same verbiage. And the one guy that they put on the stand gave a different description on the stand. Nextland says, and I think she's referring to the trial specifically. You'll have to clarify this, Bob. Was there ever any mention of the open prescription bottles on Catalina's kitchen counter? Nope. Nope. They weren't collected. They weren't noted. They weren't written in the report as though they didn't even exist. So again, we don't know what those prescriptions were. Her last question, what pieces of physical evidence, if any, have any hope of a forensic exoneration for Jen? Seems like they didn't collect much. Did the ME testify that nail clippings were obtained? If yes, were they ever tested? The ME did testify they did take nail clippings. No, I don't have an, it doesn't seem like from what we see in the trial that they ever tested them. But yeah, I think that, I mean, exoneration will be tough with forensic evidence in the crime scene only because her confession says two other people actually killed her. So no matter who those two people are, I think the state could try to spin that and say, well, yeah, so she gave us fake names, but these are the guys that actually did it. Yeah, I think it really depends who, who those, the, any testing comes back to. And if you, I, a big one is if, for, if, say, for example, Eva's DNA is found. Say Eva's DNA is under her fingernails. Well, th- now I think now you've got a case. Same thing with the wallet. You know, if Eva's the if Eva's the innocent witness and Jennifer's the guilty one, but then it's and, and a lot of the case was built on Jennifer on based on Eva throwing her under the bus, and then it comes back to it's actually Eva's DNA. But I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying if as far as w- what's usable. But as far as there's still a ton that could be tested. I mean, all this evidence should be still preserved. So it's I think it's possible to do DNA testing on the hair. I think I think DNA testing on the fingernail scrapings. Even the fingerprints, so the the prints on the door that uh, that Jim Schraub said were unusable, uh, you can get now DNA off those off those lifts. You can literally pull the the tape and swab the list for DNA. So even if you can't get a fingerprint, you can still get DNA. Mike, remember when we were in Mississippi? He told us about that. Yeah. Uh, so so that's a possibility. So there's there's still a lot of possibility where we don't have testing to work with, but I think that we should still have the evidence to work with, uh, to do further testing. As far as if it exonerates Jennifer, it's going to be tough to make a case. But, you know, on, on that note, 
one thing that is missing, I'm I gotta tell, I'm super suspicious about the fingerprints on the glass. Not now, I had somebody on the on the not the fan page, but on the main Facebook page, uh, who's a fingerprint examiner in Canada. You know that that came on and and, and told me that you're that I was wrong about that. That you can get fingerprints off glass, and to be clear, you can. Yeah, they, if I if I if I misstated that in the episode, I didn't mean to. But you can get fingerprints off glass. It is possible, and it is possible to do it with tape lifts. It's just the the point I was making was that, from what we were told by this expert we that worked with us, is that it's the worst surface to do it compared to other surfaces. And so what was odd to me was that they did get prints from there, but then they said nothing else in the apartment was usable. Well, and that, and that again, I think you mentioned too, it's just because of the surface, whether it can absorb or not, right? So like if, if right. your oils are coming off on glass, they're not going to absorb into glass and they're going to smudge. But if you use, say, paper, which I think he said was the best method, then it's going to absorb into the paper and, and lock in those prints, right? Right. Exactly right. Yeah. So you know, my issue wasn't really that they did find Jennifer's prints on the glass. It was like, well, how would you not find them anywhere else? We also have the issue that uh, Verbitsky didn't dust anywhere. He only dusted in four places for prints, didn't try to get prints anywhere else. And it's possible that the other prints were unusable. But then, you know, I think it's a pretty, pretty big deal when you find out that he has a track record for doing exactly that, for which, which, you know, the audit doesn't say it. But what it looks to me is that, that he's got a track record of doing what was done here, where the prosecution needs to not have somebody else's prints on a scene because this is the person they're going after and they don't want that bad evidence. And so he says, oh, there's no usable prints. When, you know, the audit, they, they t- there, was three, there were three examiners that were audited, but of his, 60 of the cases were his and 58% of them, or it was 32 of them, of, of his 60 were found that there were usable prints and he said that there weren't. Like that's that's a problem. And in um I think seven of the cases, he made an ID and didn't report it. Didn't tell them that he had ID'd prints. So, you know, that's an issue. But but, but getting back to the, the prints on the glass, I thought more about it after the episode. There's no pictures of it. Like you take you take pictures of fingerprint when you dust them. That's part of kind of usually, I don't know if it's chain of evidence, but you know you 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 have to be able to prove in court where things came from. So when they dust something and they get it, they'll snap a picture. So you see like the prints that are on the door, uh, the handprint and that that I put up on the website. You know they took pictures of those before they did the list. When they dusted them and they showed up, they took pictures of them. I had said there was no pictures of the print from the drawer. But actually, I think there is because I noticed in the testimony that that Jennifer's defense attorney says, you know, that that print that you thought was in blood because it was like red. And then I look back and one of the pictures we have of the face of the drawer, there's a red looking fingerprint that I think is a finger. I think so. I think that was photographed. But the one that they use at trial, the evidence that connects Jennifer to the case is not fingerprinted anywhere or excuse me, is not is not photographed anywhere. It's not documented anywhere where it was. All we know is outside of the glass. What direction were they? So it, it's, a, it's a middle finger and an index finger. And I think this matters. Where exactly on the glass was it? And what direction was it facing? You know what I mean? So if her fingers are pointed in a direction that looks like as she's walking in the door, she's grabbing the door with her left hand. 
or is it turned the other way and out closer to you know the edge of the patio where she could have been standing outside the fence and just touched it as she was like leaning over looking at it? Like we don't know. We don't know the orientation. We don't know the direction they were pointed. We don't know where they were at. And the fact that again, there's there's just another big absence of information that I think that we should have. Just it concerns me. And again, I'm I'm not even saying that they weren't her prints. You know, she's I've been under the opinion this entire time that at some point she was, you know, as I said, every single statement in one version or another, whether she's going in to check a pulse or she's going in to help with the crime and every version of the statement, she jumps that fence at some point. So I, you know, I would expect it would, it doesn't surprise me that her prints were there, but the, the way that it's been kind of covered up and the way it comes about in trial, I just find suspicious. I don't even know what is what it means, but something's not right. Darlene says, after all these years, if Jennifer has any concrete knowledge of what happened that morning, don't you think she would have screamed it far and wide? Just saying. Thanks. Yeah. I, the, I mean, there's people that would disagree, but <laughs> in my opinion, if she knows who killed Catalina, she would have said so by now. Right. What does she have to lose? Yeah. Well, and she had a ton to gain at the beginning. You know, from what I understand with her attorney, she, she confesses, she gets arrested and then she gets a court appointed attorney who went first, who goes and meets with her at the beginning for when she goes in to enter her plea and that his, he assumed that they were just going to plea it out. He thought she was guilty. She had confessed. He comes in to do the plea and I don't know specifically what that conversation was, but I have to imagine that there was that there was a discussion about the let's just let let's try to get your charge down and and let's do a plea agreement and she doesn't do it and then she's got all this time with her mom you know she her lawyer didn't have any contact with her for a while then but her mom is is in there and they're they're I have to believe that she was being encouraged if you know who did this you need to say it or you're going to go because I don't think that the intention of the prosecutor to be honest with you was to take her to trial for capital murder I think the capital murder charge was was to incentivize her to tell them who really did it. And I just don't think that she goes all the way through with this. It keeps that to herself. And then once it's over and she's convicted and now she's trying to get appeals that she's she's never, ever. I talked to her attorney, Justin, yesterday, and he just told me he's like, she doesn't know anything. She doesn't like like she's she's not she's very little help with his investigation because she doesn't know anything. At least that's how the way he feels about it. And I and I agree with the the comment here that I, I think that if she knew who did it, she would have said so by now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Marnie says, what is Jennifer's truth? Between the statement she gave to police in the interview on Crime Watch Daily, it is so hard to know the core of her story. Did she see Catalina on the patio, or was that part of the lie to help Eva with an alibi? I, I, I have no idea. I, I don't know. You know, she hasn't, Jennifer hasn't, the, the Crime Watch Daily was the first time she was given an opportunity to speak since she was arrested. She didn't testify at trial. Her, the same shitty defense attorney is the one that did her appeal. She was, so she, there was no testimony there. She's never, and, and then Crime Watch Daily comes out 20 years later and she gives a statement there, which I know a lot of people will have, you know, have pointed out like that she's still lying. She said that she wasn't in the apartment ever when we know that she was. And I think there is a combination of things going on here. One possibility is that she's lying, which wouldn't surprise me, especially if someone doesn't know what actually happened. Well, and there's a there's a point too where after a time period of lying, it becomes a truth to yourself. So if if you've lied to yourself long enough about what's happening, right, you begin to believe that that's truly what happened. Yeah, it kind of becomes your truth. So if she's kind of given this story as as the you know at 15 when she goes into adult prison, and you know is, is starts telling the story about what happened that she's innocent and this is what happened, and some of that may be a lie. And then it gets repeated over and over again. One, I think you, you're dealing with it could be that could become a new false memory. Two, it could just be, you know, well, how do I how do I change my story now? You know, what I mean, how do I go on TV and say this when I've been saying saying this to everybody else? Or it could just be she's you know someone could be a liar and not be a killer. I don't know. And then and then you you also have to deal with everybody's putting a whole lot of weight into what she said in Crime Watch Daily. And I just don't because of the way that it's edited, I don't, I don't even know. I'm not saying they did anything shady, but I don't know if what we're hearing is what she said in that context. You know, that was, you know, Mike, Mike, you and I have gone to, to TD to, to prison in Texas and interviewed at eights. We know the procedure. They give you two hours. Mm-hmm. You go in, you, you set it up and they'll give you, they give you a two hour time slot. You go in and you do the interview. So I, and, and also, I've worked in television. I know how this, when you have a two-hour window for an interview, do you know how long you interview them? Two hours. As long as possible. Yeah. You get everything you possibly can. And then they take it in. The editors cut that down. And we only hear maybe two or three minutes, if that, of Jennifer in that episode. And imagine all they have to get is a, sign, a sound bite of her saying the word yes and a sound bite of her saying the word no, and then cutting that... It, making that and editing that into an answer for any question they decide to ask. Right. So in, in post, they can, they can have the interviewer ask a question that he didn't really ask her. Right. And then throw whatever answer that they have a soundbite of at the end of that to make it seem like she answered that question. Not that that happened. Not that that happened. That's an extreme but look it's possible. at it. But, right. But, but, but I'll, I'll tell you something similar to that happened with, with my show. Not in a not in a way to dis- distort the facts or anything, but I, I'll tell you a little of how the sausage is made. The, the in, my interview with Pam Hobbs was was really really difficult. She was not in good shape when we were doing the interview, and I interviewed her for five hours all day. I mean, in, in and out, taking breaks, coming in, and it was so hard to to keep her on on track to like to to string her thoughts together, and so. Once she once she finally did, 
and we got we she was able to say what she wanted to say, but it wasn't pieced together in the right places. Meaning, like like she was very she was kind of all over the place, right? So she answers part of a. I'd ask her a question, she'd answer part of it, and then go off on a tangent about something else. We'd bring her back, you know. I I try to bring her back in to finish answering the question, then she'd she'd continue on and then go off in a different direction, and then so like this this would happen, and then so we would the editors then would like take it and kind of piece all that together, Frankenstein together. So it's still what she said. We didn't change. We they didn't change the the context or the words of what she said. They just made it sound cleaner, and then. That actually had me do VOs and like re-ask the question in the way that she answered it. And that's just that's just how it works in TV, you know. So like I asked a question this way and she kind of answered it a different way, answered the question, but it didn't fit with what I said. So they'll have you edit things and and what you look for, what I look for when I'm watching like Crime Watch Daily, if someone is speaking, if they're interviewing someone and someone is speaking. And while they're speaking, the camera cuts away to B-roll or another another shot. They've edited something together. The, so you can't. And what I mean by that is you you can't put the camera on someone's face and then cut to the beginning of their sentence and then cut something out of the middle and cut to the end of their sentence because you'll see the camera jump. So the way they do that is because they can edit audio all they want to, and if they want to, if they need to make an audio cut. Then they'll cut the they'll cut the screen to while someone's talking. All of a sudden, it's it's panning a view of the outside of the prison, and then comes back to them talking. Most of the time, I mean, some of that's just artistic stuff, but that's also a place where they can make edits. And again, I, I'm not I'm not even I'm not accusing Crime Watch Daily and by any means of doing anything you know irresponsible or changing context on purpose, but especially when somebody doesn't understand the full significance of the case. So, so the part where, you know, where she says, I was never in the apartment, they might not understand that that's a big deal because maybe they don't know about the fingerprints in her statement where she said that she was in the apartment. And, and that could have been an answer to, as Mike said, a completely different question. You know, they, they, they could have said, you know, were you, did you ever go into, they might've been talking about the wall. Did you ever go back in the apartment after the police were there? And she's, and she said, no, I never went in the apartment. After that, and that little, you see what I mean? I'm, I'm not making excuses. All I'm telling you is I, I, I can't rely on what she said in Crime Watch Daily as that's her truth because I have no idea what she actually said, in what context, in what order, what actual questions were asked before it was edited. So I don't, I don't know. I have no idea what the answer, the, the short answer to your question is I don't know what her actual truth is. And that's why we're looking at the evidence so we can just figure out what happened. And I said, if you want a good example of it, go watch the Forgotten West Memphis Three, and look at the ten-minute interview. You see, maybe a total five or ten minutes of me interviewing Pam, and know that that was a five to six-hour interview. And 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 then watch how the cuts are made, and you'll and you'll see that that's how. And again, I want to I want to stress everything. And Pam's watched it, and she agrees with everything. Was you know nobody has a problem with it. What she's what 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 was aired is what she said, but it took a lot of work. To make it seem like a flowing conversation. Heather says Truesdale said he thought, quote, it was around 9.45 a.m. when he finished checking the fire extinguishers around the complex. And that was when he went to Catalina's apartment. We now have an ME saying Catalina died at 9.15, which is before Truesdale got there. 
Could daylight savings time be part of the reason that timings are off? The clocks were forward on Sunday the 27th. Catalina died on Tuesday the 29th. Also, did pagers need to have timings manually adjusted, or was it automatic? I don't remember if you had to manually adjust them or not. I think it depends on which pager. So I had a series of pagers at that time. So my first pager was the classic Motorola that just had like two buttons on top and just the the little LED screen. And then for work a couple of years later, actually when I worked in an apartment complex as a maintenance uh, maintenance tech, I had it was a bigger pager that you could actually do text pages on. Like people could you could you could type it on a computer or you could call and speak it and they would text it and and, and send it out. And that one seemed like that one might have up like like the the text came in might have been time stamped with whatever it got from the computer maybe I don't know about the pager as far as Truesdale I don't know I mean he said he thinks it was about nine forty five so already like okay well what does that mean could that mean as early as nine could it mean nine fifteen or could it be the time difference um, the 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 time change difference I think that that's also a possibility. But the only time that I'm comfortable actually relying on is the EMS time because th- that's a big deal. Times are very important when it comes to EMS reports. There's no way that the ambulance has gone two full days of working and hasn't set their clocks back or is throwing their, t- their clocks forward. That, that time I'm very – is the only one I'm comfortable with. Any, you know, when somebody says they think something happened at about this time and it's two hours after – or two days after the time changed, not I, I'm I'm not so comfortable with that. Christina says, "Do you have the actual DNA lab reports? And if so, will you share them? If I if I find them, I'll share them. They're not in the police file. I, I need to go through more of the DA's file. It's harder to I couldn't make that one a searchable text because uh, document because of the way it's formatted. But I don't think it's in there either. And and it may be in there. And so in that production." From the DA, there are, I don't know how many, a bunch of pages that are fully redacted. I mean, the entire page is a big black box of redaction. So I don't know what was, I don't know what was in those redactions. And and it wasn't, the report wasn't entered in as evidence at trial. The DNA analysts weren't given a copy of their report for reference, which was also, you know, when, you, when your DNA expert shouldn't be testifying for six pages. You know, this is ridiculous. They, they, there was no, either there was no attention or there was too, a whole lot of attention paid to how, how the DNA evidence came out, uh, in the, especially in its, its brevity and how it came out like that. But yeah, normally it'd be like, well, what'd you find here? Here's a copy of your report for your reference. Uh, and we want to enter in this into evidence as an exhibit. None of that was done. So I, I, as far as I know, it's not in the file that I have. Aaron says, since there's evidence that the fingerprint specialists obviously had some issues with accuracy, is that something that can be used in order to get a retrial? I doubt it. You'd have to. All you could do is if you re-examined the prints from the glass and determined that they actually weren't Jennifer's, then maybe. But then you're still going to fight against the fact that a judge or the CCA in Texas will say, okay, so that's not her fingerprint on the glass, but she still confessed. So we're not overturning the conviction. I, I don't, I don't think it's going to help her, but, but, but again, it's one of those things where it won't help her in of itself, 
but hers is a case where there's going to have to be there's going to have to be a lot of little elements to prove her innocence. So to get to an actual innocence claim, which I think is where Justin is going with this, is even though that by itself might not help, but if you have, say you find, yeah, hypothetically, you find Eva's DNA on the wallet in the apartment, and maybe you find Eva's DNA on those uh, blood swabs, and you find a match to the DNA that was found on the scene, you find a match and find out that it's nobody that has any connection to Jennifer, or maybe it does, and maybe it's somebody that has a connection to Eva. You know, so now you're starting to build this case, and then, and then you're like, and there's this on top of that, there's this fingerprint issue, and on top of that, in her confession, she has the size of the murder weapon wrong, and and she has the location of things wrong, and the timing. You know, so some of those little things that wouldn't help by themselves. I think when you put them all together, they're going to help with, you know, if Jennifer is indeed innocent, and I don't know that she is, but I, I, I personally, my opinion right now is that she is, uh, but if she's indeed innocent, then all of that will come together to make the case for her innocence. Luke says the two unknown DNA profiles they found, where were they found on Catalina's body, the wall, the knife drawer? And were they compared against the profiles of the first responders or maintenance guy or anyone else who had a purpose to enter the scene? And while we're talking about DNA, Michelle says, do the two unknown DNA profiles still exist? They weren't compared against anyone but Jennifer's and Catalina's back then, but can't they be run through the database now to get a possible match? Yeah, depending on, you know, the database has requirements as far as, uh, you know, how many alleles or loci that are, are, are in the profile. So I don't know if they're strong enough samples to run through, through a database. Uh, where they were found, they were all found. They all, the only DNA testing that they did that, that we know of is they took some of the ceramic pieces, not the piece that was covered in Catalina's blood, but they took some of the broken ceramic pieces that had smaller blood stains on them, and they swabbed six of those smaller blood stains from the ceramic pottery, um, from various pieces of it, and that's where they found the two unknown profiles in those in those blood stains. And no, it wasn't it wasn't compared to the, it wasn't compared to anybody else who may have been there. So it wasn't they didn't compare it to Keith Truesdale, they didn't compare it to Pam Wiley, they didn't compare it to to Doris Gibson, the nurse. They didn't they didn't compare it to anybody else. They literally that's why the episode was titled Blinders. They looked for evidence to match, to put Jennifer on the crime scene, and when it didn't match her, they left it. Our last question comes from Michelle. With Coyne asking so many questions about the blood spatter and blood transfer, where was he going with this exactly? Does it show the position of the killer in relation to Catalina, which might explain the strange slashes across her chest? Would the killer have minimal or lots of blood on them? Was the killer kneeling or crouching over her while stabbing, and was the first blow struck while she was upright? Did they test for prints from the broken pottery if the killer didn't wear gloves? I, you know, I kind of had a question about that, too, of where the blood spatter conversation came from, because it, it seems kind of out of place for him. If you read in the transcript, it's, it's mind-numbing. Verbitsky gives us all this, this testimony, very little testimony about the evidence, and then it's like, okay, here comes Cross. Now we're going to find out, you know, the stuff that the prosecution didn't want to talk about, which is usually what happens in Cross. And he just goes on and on and on about, I mean, and, and it's, it's literally, he's not asking him about the scene. He said, so you said there was blood spatter. And he's like, yeah. He said, well, uh, so is, so is blood spatter 
where was their blood spatter? And is this blood spatter? Well, that's blood transfer. What's well, what's the difference between transfer and spatter? And he explains what the difference is. So, so, so that's so you think there's blood transfer spatter? It, it it goes on like that for pages and pages, and then he never makes a point when it's over with. I have no idea what he was getting at. Um, all I could think of is that he's trying to he's trying to make a case that the killer would have blood all over them. Is all I can, is all I can think of. But he never he tees it up and never hits it. Like he, I have no idea where he was going with it. Uh, as far as dusting for print, no, they did they didn't dust for prints as far as I know. And I have to go back and review Verbitsky's testimony, but it didn't sound like he dusted for prints on the pottery. He he dusted for just the places where he thought was relevant to the crime scene, uh, and that was it. And then you know, and then as, as far as any other evidence, I mean, is, was anybody else shocked by the fact that he didn't collect anything? No, that that's really strange that he didn't, you know, none of the knives, the pill bottles, the purses, they ignored the glasses, which, you know, we've talked about multiple times now, but the glasses right. seem like it, at least talk about them. Yeah, the drinking glasses never brought up nothing. Not, and, and I thought, say, maybe I'm going to read this and he's going to say there's some weird reason for this drinking. Nope, never brings it up. And I don't think that the, the state, it's, it's, it's very, it's cropped out of these, of the photos. Or, you know, or, or the photos they used don't ha- you never see like a clear picture of these drinking glasses. You can just get them in the video. You see them for a second and they're kind of off to the side. Nothing's done. They don't call. He doesn't collect anything as evidence. It's just crazy. I mean, I've, I've looked at a lot of murder cases and usually they just collect everything. They collect everything as evidence just in case it could be used later. And and Verbitsky spent two hours on the crime scene. And then left, and that was it, and didn't collect anything, didn't document anything. It's just an absolute mess. And with that, that is, Mike said, is the last question. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this wrap this up. For this week's episode, main episode Sunday, we have something special for you. Uh, we had a had an interview fall through on us this week, so we had to kind of scramble to figure out what we were going to do. And what we ended up landing on is we're going to have a roundtable discussion with myself and five listeners. Uh, we got on a Zoom call last night, uh, spent about an hour just talking about the case. Um, most of the people uh, that, that were on the call with me, these listeners, either lean towards guilty or are on the fence and think Jennifer might be involved. So it was a great conversation. It's kind of given the other side because I know that I, you know, I, I keep telling you I think she's innocent. So you're going to hear from some people that maybe think she's guilty or are leaning that way. We have a really, um, really good conversation, I think. So that's coming up on Sunday. If you're looking for something else to listen to tomorrow morning, the, that Chris Lambert episode will be dropping on True Crime Binge. It's the one that we already did in, in season nine. And this week's episode that is aired on Wednesday on True Crime Binge uh, is really cool. I interviewed Justine Harmon. She's the host of the OC Swingers podcast. It's brand new. There's only four episodes out so far, and it is, is it's number one in the iTunes chart. Phenomenal podcast. Really cool conversation. So if you get a chance, please check that out. And with that being said, thank you all for listening. Make sure you tune into the roundtable on Sunday, and we'll talk to you again next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. 
Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18-plus terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.